0: Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. Hello, everyone. Good to see you here today. It's good to be with you. Good also to know that we have those who are watching and listening online and that we're all together in this way. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 9. We have just a couple of weeks left in our series from Acts, and then we'll take a break for Advent and then get back into Acts sometimes next year. But today we're in Acts chapter 9. Many years ago, When I was still a little boy, my grandfather on my mother's side, I called him Pa, walked into the kitchen one day and said to my grandmother, I called her Ma, he said, you coming? And she said, coming where? And he said, coming with me down to the church building." And she said, well, Homer, why are you going to the church building? And he said, well, I'm meeting an elder down there. And she said, well, why are you meeting an elder? And he said, to be baptized. And it was for her a denture dropping moment. Because for years, he had been what we call a tough, nut to crack. For years, he had sat unmoved in his chair in the living room every Sunday morning as she took her six kids to church by herself. For years, she had invited him to come along and he had said no. For years, she had prayed for him. For years, she had pleaded with him to be baptized, showing him verses in the New Testament, hoping he would take them seriously. And for years, he had shown zero interest. And he often chided her for wasting her time, not only on him, but on church in general. And then one day, after all those years, when he was 71 years old and just a couple of years before he died, He gave his life to Christ and was baptized. And my grandmother and everyone else in the family called it a miracle. Now, today, I invite you to think about someone you know who's resistant to the Christian faith, someone that you would consider to be a tough nut to crack. Maybe they're ambivalent. Maybe you have invited them to the church a thousand times and they keep saying no, showing little to no interest. Or maybe they're antagonistic. They ridicule you and others who are foolish enough to waste their lives practicing the Christian faith. Maybe it's a coworker that you've known for years. You can see how unhappy they are, how much they're struggling. You know you can help them, but they are not interested in help from you or anyone else. Maybe it's a wayward child that was raised as a Christian but no longer follows Christ. Or maybe it's that hard to get along with neighbor that you would love to see become a Christian for selfish reasons just to make your life a little easier. Now imagine that one day, out of the blue, they pledge their allegiance to Christ, return to Christ after being wayward and begin to follow him, become a Christian. What would have to happen in that person's life in order to bring about that kind of drastic change? What would be the catalyst for that kind of transformation? What would be the catalyst for their conversion? And what role do you see yourself playing in that person's future conversion? Let's take these questions with us into this story in Acts chapter 9. In Acts 9, we have the story of Saul's conversion. At the beginning of chapter 9, we have a description of Saul's antagonism to the gospel. We first met Saul back at the end of chapter 7, remember, when Stephen was stoned? A young man named Saul was there. And he approves of what is done to Stephen. Now, he doesn't throw any rocks. He actually just holds the coats of those who are throwing the rocks. But now, at the beginning of chapter 9, he is aggressively persecuting Christians. He's on his way to Damascus, outside of Jerusalem, in search of disciples who live there so that he can arrest them, take them prisoner, and haul them back to Jerusalem for prosecution and persecution. I say that puts Saul squarely in the tough nut to crack category. Don't you? And we pick up the story in verse three. As Saul named or neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Lord. Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And Saul leaves this encounter blind. And he goes on into Damascus where he sits in the darkness for three days and three nights, not eating or drinking anything. And then we pick up the story again in verse 10. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias and the Lord called to him in a vision Ananias yes Lord he answered the Lord told him go to the house of Judas on straight street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying you bet he's praying and in a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight Lord Ananias answered. Actually, it was a little less enthusiastically than the first Lord. Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How'd you like to be Ananias? You're minding your own business. Just trying to be faithful. And the Lord comes to you and wants you to go minister to your biggest enemy. Maybe the person you are most afraid of in the world at that moment. And Ananias is understandably resistant. I, I love the way he tries to give the Lord some information the Lord may not have. Lord, you know, I don't know if you've heard, but this guy, Saul, he's a troublemaker. I, he's causing a lot of trouble for your people. Lord says, I am aware. I know he is, I know what he's doing, and I know what I have planned for him. So Ananias goes from verse 17. Goes to the house, enters it And then if you keep reading, you see almost immediately, just a few days later, Saul goes into the synagogues in Damascus to announce that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. And immediately, he's a powerful preacher of the gospel. And then not long after that, he's in trouble. And his life is in danger. And he has to flee Damascus in the middle of the night in a basket. From hunter... Too hunted like that. His life is not only turned around, it's turned upside down. And he, in the early church, the world is never the same after that moment. There are a lot of miracles in the book of Acts. But in my estimation, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is the biggest miracle of all. It's certainly the most iconic in early Christianity. After all, Saul becomes Paul. Very good. Saul becomes Paul, who goes on to become the most influential theologian in Christian history, writing a big chunk of the New Testament. properly defined, Christian conversion is our total reorientation of our lives around Jesus Christ. To be converted to Christ is to have our orientation in life reoriented around the risen Christ. And this reorientation can happen very quickly, as it does for Saul after an encounter with the risen Lord, or it can be more gradual, take place over time. Back in the summer, we talked a bit about how conversion is this event, but it's also a lifelong process. Either way, the result is the same. When we are converted to Christ, when our lives are reoriented around him, the direction and the trajectory of our lives is forever changed by our encounter with the risen Christ. And those who study conversions, the nature of conversions, conversion theory experts, they are called, they tell us that there are some common elements or themes involved in all conversions. In conversion, there is almost always a crisis of some kind. There's almost always a crisis that catalyzes the transformation, the conversion, because this crisis upsets our equilibrium, throws us off balance, and causes us to question our previous assumptions, beliefs, and commitments. And it's in that state of disequilibrium that we are now open to new information, new possibilities, new perspectives especially from a Christian point of view about the identity of and the lordship of Christ. And there are a number of different kinds of these conversion crises that can come into our lives. It's not just one type, there's many types. Guilt is a crisis that can lead to conversion. Saul believed he was being faithful to God by persecuting disciples of Christ only to learn on the road that he was actually persecuting the risen Christ. We've seen in the early chapters of Acts how a common source of guilt for the first Christians was that realization that dawned on them. We thought we were being faithful to God by resisting Christ, and actually we were resisting and rejecting the long-awaited Messiah. What shall we do? And it's that sense of guilt, that crisis that opens the door for a conversion to Christ. Sickness can be a conversion crisis. As one writer has put it, don't waste your cancer. My grandfather's health was deteriorating when he was baptized. What my grandmother could not accomplish, cancer could. Sickness can be a crisis that leads us to Christ. Loss, personal loss, is a conversion crisis, can be. Loss of money, loss of job, loss of a loved one. The journalist Britt Hume has told a story in multiple interviews over the last several years how it was the tragic loss of his son that awakened him to the presence of God in his life. It was the worst thing imaginable for a father that turned his heart toward his father in heaven. The crisis can be intellectual. A number of years ago, a well-known atheist blogger declared that she was becoming a Christian because she could not account for the sense of morality, the deep sense of right and wrong that existed within her apart from God. And it was this intellectual crisis that led her to Christ. Or it can be existential in nature. A successful person achieves all of her goals. He accomplishes all of his dreams only to look around and ask, is this it? Why do I feel so empty? I have everything I've ever wanted. I've done everything I've ever wanted to do, and life still seems meaningless. Is there something more? And no one articulates this existential crisis better than the writer of Ecclesiastes, if you haven't read that in a while. Or the crisis can be precipitated by some external event, the failure of a government, a natural disaster, a terrorist attack. Three days after 9-11, a man who had been attending our church walked into my office in the middle of the afternoon and said, I want to be baptized right now. The Lord had his attention. Now, you've likely already recognized that I could also work down this list of conversion crises and describe how they sometimes lead Christians to deconstruct their Christian faith and even deconvert from Christianity and convert to something else or convert to nothing at all. But that's another conversation for another day. It's an important conversation, one worth having, but not today. Today, let's focus more on the role we play in the conversion of someone else as they are experiencing one of these crises. What is our role in the conversion process when someone is in crisis? Well, what was Ananias' role in Saul's conversion? really? What did he do? He did not provoke the crisis. God took care of that. And God does not cause every crisis that comes upon us, but God does allow attention-getting, life-altering crises to come upon us. But Ananias's job was not make the crisis happen. Ananias' job was not to be the crisis. His job was to be Saul's friend in the midst of darkness. And he goes to Saul and he speaks words of hope and truth and light into his life. He speaks the words the Lord had given him to say to Saul. And our role in the conversion of others is to be their neighbor. To be their friend in their crisis, when they're hurting, when they are open to some new information about Jesus. That's our role. We partner with God who's drawing that person to Christ. We're there to be the human element that always accompanies the work of God, but our role is to be the friend, like Ananias. We love, we serve others, we We sit with them in their pain. We can ask them questions and listen patiently to their answers. We can answer their questions when they're curious. We can explain the scriptures when they're wondering like the eunuch was and what Philip did with him. We have a role to play, but ultimately our job is to be a friend to them who's always pointing them to Christ in the midst of their crisis. One of the reasons people attend church for the first time is because they're in a crisis of some kind. So keep inviting. They keep saying no, doesn't matter. Keep inviting because you never know when something will happen in their life that turns that no into a maybe and then into a yes. One of the ways we participate in the conversion of others as a church when we gather here is by making room and being hospitable for newcomers. We never know what's going on in someone's life that causes them to finally pull onto our parking lot and to walk into this building. We have a role to play in the process. But what can we do? What can we do then to make sure, to guarantee that our family, friends, neighbors, enemies, newcomers are finally converted to Christ. What can we do to guarantee it will happen? Nothing. That's not our job. That's not our role in this process. Only the Holy Spirit can truly convert someone to Christ. A couple of years ago, I was with one of the most godly men I know, someone that many people come to for spiritual wisdom and direction, and we were in a small group, and he confessed to the group. He said, I have not been able to fix anyone this year. I can't fix anyone And he said, after all these years, I think I'm finally starting to get it. I'm realizing it's not my job to fix people. It's my job to love them. We don't convert anyone to Christ with the quality of our life. Now, the quality of our life could bring about a crisis, In their lives, when they see the way we love one another, when they see the way we love our enemies, when they see the way we forgive those who have hurt us, it can create a crisis when they see the way we live, but ultimately, it's not our way of life that converts them. It's not our persuasive arguments. We do not argue people into Christ. It's not the powerful preaching, it's not a well designed gospel presentation. Now, all of those can play a role in the process. We're here for a reason, doing what we do for a reason. It can play a role in the process. But ultimately, conversion is a miraculous act of God brought about by the Holy Spirit in amazing, surprising, and mysterious ways. You think about those nuts in your life that are tough to crack. Really think you can change them? You? Me? A few things in life are harder than bringing lasting change to a human being. Forget about trying to change other people. We know this from trying to change ourselves. How hard is it to change your own behavior, your own habits, your own inclinations? Conversion to Christ, conversion from a selfish, self-oriented way of life to a Christ-oriented way of life is a miracle. And I say today, it's the biggest miracle of all. One only God can perform. So, as we consider those nuts, who are tough to crack, may we accept and be at peace with our role in their conversion. We cannot fix them, but we can love them. We cannot change them, but we can pray for them. We cannot convert them, but we can be their friend. And as we play our role in their conversion, may we trust God to do what God does best. And may God continue to surprise and amaze us with the miracle of changed lives. Would you stand, please, and read with me this benediction from Ephesians 3. Before we read this, I'll say quickly, if you are in the midst of a crisis that's causing you to ask some deeper, heavier, more complicated questions than you've ever asked in your life, and you want to talk to somebody about it, I'll be up here up front immediately after this. We also have some who will be in prayer rooms on the other side of the lobby behind us. Anyone here you know and trust, you could visit with them as well. We'd love to walk alongside you in the midst of your crisis and see where God is leading you. Let's read this benediction out loud together. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace and play your role. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus because we honestly believe following him is the best way of life possible. Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.